It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible, or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 3814567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And welcome to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday evening, December 20th, 2007. We've got one more to go after tonight for the Virtual Bible Study in 2007. We're glad you're a part of it tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, good to be with you, as always, on Thursday night for the Virtual Bible Study. It is good to be with you. And my brother, Jared Gwynn, is in town. Hello, Jared. Hello. Welcome to the program. Well, we have an interesting uh, discussion for tonight, and we want your participation at 877-381-4567 or questions at collegeview.com. We want to talk about Mormonism on the program tonight. It is a topic that's in the discussion in discussion in the news uh, quite frequently now, Dad, because of the fact that Mitt Romney, a presidential candidate, is a Mormon, and so there's been a lot of focus and attention on Mormonism. We want to look at uh, Mormonism tonight, compare it with what the Bible teaches. We do want to talk about that, and right at the start, I think I would want to caution that we're not trying to take a political point of view here. This, our purpose is not politics on the virtual Bible study, and we're not trying to espouse a particular political point of view, but... The issue has been brought up in the news media, and Mr. Romney himself, uh, in a speech last week, brought up the, the subject of his Mormon religion. And the question is, in the news, the question has been, will this affect, will the fact that he's a Mormon, will it affect his candidacy for president? And I think it's a worthy question, not just about Mitt Romney, but about any man and his particular religious belief and practice, should we take those kind of things into consideration when we decide who we will vote for? It's a, it's a question not about a specific candidate or his beliefs, but about our, our uh, privilege of voting and our decision-making as we try to influence affairs as Christians. And so uh, I think it's a worthy topic for discussion, and we want to get our listeners to participate in this study tonight. We sent out a couple of questions earlier to our mailing update list. If you're not on that list, if you'd like to receive our regular email updates and our poll questions each week, which precede the, the program, usually I send them out on Thursday afternoon, uh, just send us an email to questions at collegeview.com just say, and just say, uh, add me to your list, and we'll do that. Be glad to do that. We've got uh, several hundred people that we send these out to each week, and this week the question we sent out was, number one, would the fact that a candidate for president is a Mormon influence your decision to vote for him? Why or why not? And number two, briefly explain how you respond to Mormons who come knocking at your door. And so we'd like to get your input. If you have not already sent in an answer to those questions, do so now. Number one, would the fact that a candidate for president is a Mormon influence your decision to vote for him? Why or why not? And number two, briefly explain how you respond to Mormons who come knocking at your door. We'd like to get your input. Again, the email address is questions at collegeview.com. Or we'd be glad to take your phone call at 877-381-4567. Get on the phone and call us right now. We'll put you right on the air. You can tell us your think so's. I was just looking at the answers that we've gotten back to those questions that you asked, and we've got some good answers there already, and we'd like to have yours as well. Again, questions at collegeview.com or 877-381-4567. It is an important uh, topic, Dad, uh, as we talk about uh, the religious uh, beliefs of a presidential candidate, but more importantly, the religion itself. What about Mormonism? We want to look at it tonight so we can have a better understanding about that uh, religion and uh, compare it with what the Bible teaches. Does God want us to be Mormon? We'll look at that tonight. Again, we're not trying to take a political viewpoint in regards to Mitt Romney and his presidential candidacy specifically, but it has become an issue. It's in the news, and it's worth talking about. In the speech that Mitt Romney gave last week, I've got a transcript of it in my hand, and I'm not, certainly not going to take time to read all of that, but there was one quote that sort of, I thought, conveyed the gist of what he was saying. Um, he speaks of the fact that he uh, is 
associated with the Mormon Church, and he says there are some for whom these commitments are not enough. That is, he's committing that he would not allow. He says, uh, let me assure you that no authorities of my church or of any other church for that matter will ever influence or exert influence on presidential decisions. Their authority is theirs within the province of church affairs, and it ends where the affairs of the nation begin. So he said, I won't let the church influence my decisions. Then he says, there are some for whom these commitments are not enough. They would prefer it if I would simply distance myself from my religion, say that it is a, a more of a tradition than my personal conviction, or disavow one or another of its precepts. That I will not do. I believe in my Mormon faith, and I endeavor to live by it. My faith is the faith of my fathers. I will be true to them and to my beliefs. And so uh, Mitt Romney has made it clear he's a Mormon, and he, he, he will not distance himself from that religion in order to gain the presidency. I, I actually appreciate the fact that he's not willing to sell out, at least in, in, uh, in his profession, is that he will not sell out his religious convictions for the sake of gaining the presidency. But he does avow an allegiance to the Mormon church. He says he won't allow that to influence his decisions. And I wonder how that could possibly be so. I want to tell you, uh, as a Christian and with faith in God, my faith in God and my belief concerning what the Bible teaches would absolutely influence my decisions. They do on my current job and they would on any job that I might take, including the job of being president if I was in that job. And a person who says he won't let his religious convictions influence his decision-making on the job, I, I feel like that's a problem in itself. And so anyway, the point of that is that Mitt Romney has avowed that he is a, he is a Mormon, and he's not going to distance himself from that. And so the question is, would you uh, vote for such a person? who professes that religious faith. Well, he took a strong stand there, but he also, in his speech, uh, you might want to comment on this, uh, he sort of expressed the uh, pluralism that's popular in our society today. He said, quote, I believe that every faith I have encountered draws its adherents closer to God, and in every faith I have come to know there are features I wish were in my own. I love the profound ceremony of the Catholic Mass, the approachability of God, and the prayers of the evangelicals. The tenderness of spirit among the Pentecostals, the confident independence of the Lutherans, the ancient traditions of the Jews, unchanged through, uh, through the ages, and the commitment to frequent prayer of the Muslims. As I travel across the country and see our towns and cities, I am always moved by the many houses of worship with their steeples, all pointing to heaven, reminding us of the source of life's blessings. And so basically he says you can practice anything you want and you'll get closer to God throughout through that practice. So he's saying he's a Mormon, but he didn't I would take it from that he's not saying that you'd have to be a Mormon to make it to heaven. Uh basically that he would be as you use the word Jacob pluralist pluralism. He's a pluralist. He believed there might be many different approaches as to how a person might approach God. But you know the Mormon faith itself is a, a rather bizarre one. And I don't know, we want to get into this as our program develops tonight, but there are just some very strange views held by the Mormons. Uh, earlier this week, Fox News uh, sent some questions to the Mormon Church. Of course, of course, the Mormon Church is officially the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they asked them 21 questions. And I thought that the response, the official response from the Mormon church was very evasive. In fact, as they asked various questions, the Mormon church would simply recite the same answer to numerous questions. But a couple of them are telling. One of the questions asked by Fox News to the official Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was this. Does the Mormon church believe that Jesus appeared in North America after his crucifixion and resurrection? And this is their answer. The appearance of Jesus in the Western Hemisphere shortly after his resurrection is described in the Book of Mormon. Mormons believe that when Christ told his disciples in the Bible he had other sheep who would receive his message, he was referring to those people in the Western Hemisphere. Of course, we believe Jesus was speaking to the Jews. When he said he had other sheep, he was talking about the Gentiles. He wasn't talking about people in the Western Hemisphere versus the, the other half of the world. But the Mormons do believe that Jesus appeared here in the Americas, in the Western Hemisphere, after his resurrection. And then, of course, they ask the question, what are the golden plates 
And the Mormon church, official Mormon church, responded, the Book of Mormon was translated by Joseph Smith from records made on plates of gold similar to metal plates that have been found in other ancient cultures. It contained a history of peoples in the Western Hemisphere, including an appearance by the Savior to them. As such, the Book of Mormon is considered a second testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, some time ago, the Mormon Church had a pretty massive advertising campaign. You may remember, our listeners may remember, where they were calling the Book of Mormon another testament of Jesus Christ, so an additional revelation. Joseph Smith, this man Joseph Smith, supposedly was led to and discovered plates of gold on which were, were inscribed a message, and he was guided by God in the translation of those golden plates and the result was the Book of Mormon. Of course, those plates are non-existent. They're not around, and nobody ever, nobody else was ever able to see those things. It was all Joseph Smith's claims. And of course, Joseph Smith himself had a rather checkered past in regards to various schemes and different things that he had been involved in. But supposedly the Book of Mormon then was translated from those golden plates and describes a visit that Jesus made to the Western Hemisphere sometime following his resurrection. Those serve as sort of fundamental uh, cornerstones of the Mormon religion. And, of course, that is not at all mentioned in the Word of God, and we want to talk about that. All right. Uh, so uh, some interesting beliefs. You're not going to talk about the Mormon underwear in that, that question? Well, it's kind of interesting that they do. Uh, there was a question. The, the Mormon uh, church was asked the question of, a particular kind of underwear is the, the the Fox News ask is there a thing such as is there such a thing as Mormon underwear if so are all Mormons required to wear it what does it symbolize and they answered like members of many religious faiths Latter, Latter Day Saints wear religious clothing members of other faiths typically those involved in permanent pastoral duties or religious services usually wear religious garments as outer ceremonial vestments or symbols of recognition. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, garments are worn beneath street clothes as a personal and private reminder of commitments to God. Garments are considered sacred by the church members and are not regarded as a topic for casual conversation. Well, probably that's true. Underwear is not a, a suitable topic for casual conversation, but yeah. they, they don't deny that they do wear a, a religious underwear. Well, I mean, that, that sort of uh, is we're poking fun at something there that may be, may be valid. Maybe we should be wearing Mormon underwear. Well, if, if, what the, if what they teach is true, then we all ought to be doing it. Sure. So we need to find out if what they're teaching is true. There's all kinds of bizarre beliefs. We could talk about those some more. Uh, did you know they believe that God was once human? And he has followed a path that they believe that we he, can follow. We can follow. We become gods one day, and uh, the process, I guess, repeats itself. And so we can look at that some more. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven questions at collegeview dot com. Let us know your thoughts about Mormonism. What about those questions we sent out earlier? Number one, would the fact that a candidate for president is a Mormon influence your decision to vote for him? Why or why not? So would you vote for? Mitt Romney or anybody else who was running for public office who was a Mormon? Why would, why would you or why would you not? And then number two, briefly describe how you respond to Mormons who come knocking at your door. My guess is that almost everybody who's listening tonight at one time or another has had some Mormons knocking at their door because the Mormons are very active in doing that. Typically, young Mormons take two years and devote themselves to doing what we would refer to as missionary work. And it may be here in the United States or it may be in some foreign country. I've run into Mormons in, in Russia. They do that. They're very, they're very active in that regard. Personally, I would commend them for it. I don't agree with what they're teaching, but I commend their zeal and enthusiasm to do that. I, uh, there are very few religions wherein the majority of teenagers in that religion would be willing to devote themselves to two years of such activity. And so uh, to me, that's not something to make fun of. That's something that, that, that I think is actually uh, impressive on their part. Again, I think they're wrong, but I commend their zeal for what they're doing. Uh, we need to have serious enthusiasm for, for our service to God, and they apparently have that. And so you've probably had them come to your door. And when they do come to your door, how do you answer them? What approach do you use? And we want to get your response on that. All right, time for a break. Take this time to send us your email or get on the phone, and we'll talk to you on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this.
You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Hello. Hey, Matt. No, I don't have any plans for Friday night. What are you doing? Well, I won't be able to go with you to watch that movie. Because, Matt, the movie is rated R. Hey, why don't you just come over and hang out at my house Friday night? Great, I'll see you there. Then pleasing to God means that you may have to be different than the crowd. But don't be afraid to stand up for what's right. You just might find it is easier than what you expect. A message brought to you by College of Church of Christ. Hello, my name is Kent Bumgarner. My family and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. Please join us. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to the program tonight. We're glad that you're joining us. Uh, you just heard Kent in Jackson, Tennessee. He likes to listen to the virtual Bible study. If you like to listen to the virtual Bible study, and you can record your voice on your computer, do so and tell us where you are and tell us if you listen to the program live or in the audio or the archive version of the program. So there's a little promo there. Tell us where you are and you'd like to listen to the virtual Bible study. We'll play your voice on the program so that other people can know that you're out there. We'd enjoy hearing from you if you enjoy listening to the virtual Bible study. We're talking about Mormonism on the program tonight. It is in the news lately with Mitt Romney being a Mormon. There's a lot of curiosity and wondering about the Mormon faith. We want to know what you think about it, what the Bible says about Mormonism. Is it possible? Does the Bible allow for the fact that there could be a more Book of Mormon? And does the Bible allow for the fact or allude to the fact that we could have a Mormon religion and be pleasing to God? Let us know your thoughts at 877-381-4567 or send us your emails to questions at collegeview.com. We've got a lot of emails we want some from you as well. If you haven't joined in yet, join in on the email, or better yet, give us a call at 877-381-4567. That is toll-free. We'll pay the bill tonight if you'll join in on the discussion. Jay, we're getting more emails in on this question. Some have just come in just in the last couple minutes here. i got one from Mark in Cookville, Tennessee. He says, I would vote for a Mormon if he was the best candidate for the office. Uh, and I've got one from Anthony in Columbia, Tennessee, who says, absolutely, yes, he'd vote for him. Given the choice between a New Testament Christian and a Mormon, a Christian should not vote for a Mormon. However, since our country operates essentially on a two-party system, often the best a Christian can do is vote for the lesser of two evils. If a Christian abstains from voting, he is essentially helping the liberal, ungodly candidate to potentially win. So Anthony says, yes, he would uh basically vote for the lesser of two evils. All right. Jim in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, says, if a man can ignore and reject the word of God, would it not be easier for him to reject and ignore the words of men? That is the Constitution. I would not vote for such a man. So Jim would not. All right. So we're getting a diversity of answer here. Jim in Mount Pleasant says no. Uh, I've got an email from Brian up in Plainfield, Indiana, who says, it would not affect my decision negatively. The fact that Romney is a Mormon has no bearing on how I view him as a leader. I'm actually hoping Huckabee is the nominee. Over the years, I have voted for presidents who practice some form of religion that is at odds with what the Bible teaches. If Romney is, in fact, the candidate in the national election, then I will most likely vote for him. He believes in conservative principles that are more closely, that more closely mirror what I believe as a Christian, as opposed to Hillary Clinton, who has absolutely nothing in common with what I believe as a Christian, conservative, or an American. So uh, Brian says he would, uh, although he's not his preferred candidate, he, he would. He makes an interesting point. You know, there have been just one, I think only one president in the whole history of the United States who was uh, an acclaimed or a self-pronounced member of the Church of Christ. Uh, so in our lifetime, everybody we've ever voted for has been of some religion different than what we believe is the actual true religion taught in the pages of the New Testament. And so uh, Brian is making the point, typically we're always voting for somebody that we differ with religiously, and so he says that would not influence his decision. All right, let's go to the phone and go up to Louisville, Kentucky, and welcome Marcus to the program. Hello, Marcus. Thanks for calling. How you guys doing? We're doing great. Thanks for calling tonight. I think that... Christians and Mormons, when it comes to the social moral issues, they have a lot in common. It's just when it comes to the other theological issues, such as the Trinity, Jesus, and salvation, where Christians and Mormons disagree. 
uh, I think that if I was going to endorse a candidate, he will ha- they will have to be a candidate that was going to uphold Judeo-Christian principles. And whether he was a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim, if he was willing to uphold those principles, then I think I could support him. Uh, I don't think that we should be willing to endorse a candidate uh, because he's a Christian or because he's not a Christian, uh, because this nation is a democracy. And sometimes I think that we are pushing too hard for a theocracy. And I, I think that we know that when Christianity, uh, when the Roman Catholic Church and Rome became born, that was the major downfall of the, the Rome Church. So uh, I would hope that the United States will continue to push uh, democracy and, and not be willing to support a candidate because he's a Christian, or he's a Jew, or he's a Hindu. And Mar- Marcus, this is Greg. I, uh, I appreciate your comments, and thank you for listening tonight. You know, I agree with you that, for instance, in the case of this present candidate, uh, Mitt Romney, from what I'm able to determine about him in regards to his morals, he seems to be a very moral man. He's got a good family. He's raised his family well. In fact, my guess is, in comparison to all others who are out there uh, running for president right now, he probably morally is the most conservative and 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 in his personal life probably practices morality more clearly than than the others. And I would definitely agree with you about that. Yeah, I would agree, too. And like you were saying before, uh, as for us, uh, our brotherhood, there has only been one president that we – will probably endorse all the way. Uh, that was James Garfield. Right. Uh, for example, uh, even George Bush, who is considered a social conservative, uh, you know, he's a Methodist. So we will have some major disagreements with this. Yeah, so uh, almost, everybody, almost everybody that has ever run for president and that people have been asked to vote for or against, almost all of them uh, have had things that we would differ with them about religiously. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Marcus, we appreciate you listening up there in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay, great show, guys. Thank, Thank you. Thanks. 877-381-4567 is the number that Marcus called. We'd like to hear from you, your thoughts about Mormonism on the program tonight. Jacob, let me add one thing here. I'm, we want to get some of these other emails. Would it affect your decision to vote for such a person if he was a, a Mormon? I read an article recently by a fellow who was an ex-Mormon. And he made the point, and it really got me to thinking. It worries me somewhat because I'm torn, and I haven't, I haven't made a decision in my mind absolutely about this yet. But um, as a former Mormon, he said, "Think of this." He said, we, "We talked earlier about how these young Mormons go out on two years of missionary work." And he says, "Imagine now a Mormon is elected to the presidency of the United States." He says, "You can just be sure." that every one of those young missionaries as they go about their work will be carrying an 8 by 10 glossy of President Mitt Romney, a Mormon. And he said it will lend incredible credibility to their, to their religion and to their efforts to expand that religion and promote it uh, around the world. I think, that, I think that is true. I think the Mormon church is, is working desperately to try to gain respectability or mainstream status Because actually, and we're going to get into some of this as our study continues tonight, but the Mormon church is founded upon some some bizarre claims, unprovable claims. There is not any legitimacy to them. They are actually a fairly extreme, eccentric cult, religious cult. And so by electing a president who is a Mormon, it would it would lend a huge dose of credibility to their religion, and they would use it, according to this fellow who was an ex-Mormon. That's something that's got to be thrown into this mix and this decision-making. Well, you could say the, the reverse, though, of that. Anybody you would elect could be uh, – that could be a, a, a card that someone might play. You know, uh, the president might. is Catholic or the president is a Methodist. Well, Don't you want to be – Well, a- they might, but we have the track record of those. Um, for instance, uh, Bill Clinton was a Baptist, but I don't think that the Baptists were using the fact that Bill Clinton well, was one of their own uh, to promote their cause. I don't think, uh, as Marcus just said, George Bush is a Methodist. I don't think the Methodists are promoting Methodism by virtue of the fact that George Bush is one of them. I don't think other religions would do that. I think the Mormons would, and that ex-Mormon who wrote that article said they would. Likely would. Let us know your thoughts. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Steve says, 
that as long as differences of similar consequences existed with other candidates, no. According to the Germans, the last four presidents have been Freemasons. So uh, I think Steve, by the way, I think he did a good bit of evangelistic work in Germany. So that's probably where he's getting that uh, that input. So he's saying that we've had presidents who were Freemasons before, which is, as we have studied on the Virtual Bible Study, which is a religion in itself. Yeah. So uh, that's an interesting point. Uh, we've got an email from Randy in Jackson, Missouri. Randy, thanks for your participation in the Virtual Bible Study. He said, in our country, it's difficult for a president to get his religious views legislated. It's much easier for him or her to get his moral beliefs legislated or to get judges appointed with his moral beliefs. Therefore, I'd be more likely to vote for a Mormon with my moral beliefs than a so-called Christian with weak morals. And so Randy says, yes, based upon the fact that basically the main question is, is this fellow a moral individual? And it seems that he is. Wade says, I'm not sure that Mormonism would influence my decision just because someone claims to be a Christian does not mean that they are. We've had many presidents that claim to believe in Christ, but looking at their past lives, we can safely assume their claims were unfounded. So uh, Wade says that, you know, again, basically the same idea we've been getting is that, you know, all presidential candidates, we'd probably differ with them all on something religious. Uh, Aaron uh, in Texas writes, would, would you vote, would it affect your vote to vote for a man who's a Mormon? He says, not necessarily. My opinion of most candidates for high office is that they don't let their religion get in the way of practical politics. If a decision arose for which a candidate's Mormon faith would lead him to some perverse course of action, that might raise an outcry among the masses who express themselves in opinion polls. I believe that candidate would rationalize some reason not to follow what his church might prefer. In other words, I don't think most of them would let their faith guide them to swim against the tide too much. That's why Romney was pro-choice for so long when his church is clearly against it. For the same reason that John Kerry said he was personally opposed to abortion as a Catholic, who would not make that belief a part of his public policy. I'm much more concerned about humanism and moral relativism rather than Mormonism. And so Aaron says, probably not, probably would not affect well, it. We saw a little bit of that political side in his speech where he said all churches, uh, their steeples are pointing towards heaven and getting people closer to God. Yeah, he's a pluralist religiously, and by, and, and I think he's a politician. As, a politician, as, right. As Aaron points out, he's a politician who wants to stay in front of the majority public opinion, and so that would probably be the main thing. Don in Nashville has a different opinion. He says, I would never vote for a Mormon because there has got to be something wrong somewhere for someone to believe that way. And I would be afraid it would affect his ability to do the job. However, if religion is a criteria, then I can't see singling out a Mormon any more than a Catholic, Baptist, Jew, Methodist, Jew, Muslim, or any other faith, Christian uh, denomination, or self-proclaimed non-denomination. Our government laws and society are so mixed up and corrupt that I can't see how a true Christian could ever get elected in the first place, let alone make righteous decisions if he should get in. So what's the point in making a case over a Mormon? What's all the rest of them? All right. What about all the rest of them, he says? So well, uh, interesting points there. Yeah. Uh, it, it is true. You know, I mean, we're, we're seeing the same theme here in several of these answers. We, we're going to differ with every candidate on something. And so, you know, the fact that he's a Mormon and we differ with him on that is no more so than if we differ with a Methodist or a or a Baptist. Uh, Don's so. point is interesting, though, about his character in general. If if he's willing to follow uh, that uh, type of uh, extreme, far-out, uh, radical, whatever you want to call it, uh, movement, what does that say about his, his judgment in general? Well, that's the thing, and, and others have asked me about this privately, and, and my, my answer to them, and I don't mean this to be flippant, but my answer to them is, you know, I don't think I could... Uh, my first reaction is I don't think I could vote for a man who's a Mormon because I think the claims of the Mormon church are so outrageous, and anybody who could be deceived to believe them, in other words, if they're, if they're foolish enough to believe the claims of the Mormon church, do I want that fellow in charge of the nuclear football? Uh, you know, I, and again, I don't mean that to be flippant, but that I, I, I see Don's point. There, there's something wrong there. Anybody who has intellectual capacity and will examine the claims of the Mormon church, I think, is going to come out of that. All right. So there you go. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. We're still looking forward to taking your emails. If you want to join in on email or especially over the phone tonight, we'd like to hear from you. 
Jacob, let me give one more answer. Got an answer just now coming in from Keith in Lynchburg, Tennessee. Thanks for writing, Keith. He says, so the fact that this candidate is Mormon is probably no different from the fact that the current president is a Methodist. All my dealings with Mormons, they are good moral people, but they are in error just as all the other religions. If you look up all the presidents that have served, most have been Presbyterian or Episcopal. One or two have even been deists. Two have been disciples of Christ or Christian church. All seem to be in some error. So if you have voted for any of these, then voting for a Mormon is probably no different. You have to vote for the lesser of two evils. That's from Keith in Lynchburg. Thank you, Keith, for your comment and for listening tonight. We're going to take a break, and when we get back on the other side, Dad, we ought to get into what the Bible teaches about the possibility of Mormonism, compare their teachings with what the Bible says. And if we find an error there, a contradiction, we can immediately determine that the, the Mormon religion is not a religion from God. So we'll look forward to that discussion on the other side of the break. We'll look forward to your comments at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeu.com. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks it. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the virtual Bible study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. I'm Arthur Haynes from Kaleoka, Tennessee, and one of my greatest highlights of the week is to listen to the virtual Bible study. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us again. We're looking forward to your participation. Join in on the discussion now as we talk about Mormonism. If you're just joining us on the discussion tonight, we're talking about Mormonism. It is in the news a lot lately. We want to know what the Bible teaches. Does the Bible allow for the possibility that there could be a religion of Mormonism? Would it be pleasing to God? What does the Bible teach about that? Let us know your thoughts. Jacob, we've got a follow-up email coming in from Anthony. We read his answer just a few minutes ago, and he said he wants to... He said, I would again stress that since essentially the only vote that counts in our country is one for either the Democratic or Republican candidate, a vote against the more morally conservative candidate is a vote against the person who has no morals. Would we not do our part to try to keep an immoral person out of the White House? In other words, Anthony is basically saying we're going to have two choices, and the two choices would be a person with some morals versus a person who potentially doesn't have any morals. And regardless of religious affiliation, wouldn't you rather have the one with some morals? That's the argument he's making there. And we appreciate Anthony giving us that follow-up and that clarification to his answer. And that assumes that the person on the other side of the ticket doesn't have any morals. Yeah. But, I mean, there would be issues that you would disagree with. Yeah. Well, you know, for instance, if, if, if Mitt Romney, who's a Mormon, was the Republican nominee, he's, he's against abortion. He's against uh, gay marriage and so forth, more than likely the opponent on the other side is going to be pro-abortion and pro-gay marriage. Now, if that's your choice, which one are you going to vote for? Right. That's, I think that's what Anthony said. Right. But, and, but let's say Mitt Romney is not the uh, candidate. Uh, there are Republican candidates who are not moral people in general. Let's say it's Giuliani. And Giuliani is, is uh, pro-abortion, right. pro-gay marriage, and he'd be on the Republican side. So what are you going to do? I mean, but I think those, bottom line, I think you've got to factor in those. To me, those are going to be the big issues to determine who I vote for. I mean, that's going to be the main thing. I'm not going to vote for somebody who's pro-abortion. I just, I just won't vote for somebody who's pro-abortion. All right. Or pro-gay marriage. I just won't vote for them. All right. Well, what, are, what does the Bible say about... Uh, who are you going to vote for, Jared? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. I guess I'll wait till the end of the program to take my decision. <laughs> All right. Uh, what about uh, the Book of Mormon? Could there be another revelation of Jesus Christ, another testament? As we said earlier, the Mormon Church had a big advertising campaign several years ago calling the Book of Mormon another testament of Jesus Christ. But, you know, another testament of Jesus Christ is really not possible. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul said, But though we are an angel from heaven, by the way, an angel from heaven, 
Joseph Smith claims that the angel Maroni from heaven from heaven is the one who guided him to these golden plates and, and assisted in him in, in translating them. Notice how that is directly addressed here by the statement of the Apostle Paul. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Seems to me that one verse pretty well answers the question. Another gospel, and if it's an angel from heaven preaching another gospel, he's to be accursed. The Mormons admit it is another gospel from an angel from heaven. Therefore, it ought to be disregarded immediately. Well, I mean, almost that one verse, that one passage answers the whole thing, doesn't it? That's exactly right. All right. Well, what about Hebrews chapter six, uh, verses? Uh, Hebrews chapter eight, verses six through eight. He is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should have no place been sought for the second. Finding for finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that he saith, A new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which is old, uh, which decayeth and waxes old, is ready to vanish away. Uh, so the Hebrew writer is contrasting the Old Testament covenant of Moses with the New Testament uh, will of Jesus Christ. Says there's two covenants, and this only says there are two. And 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 Hebrews chapter ten verse nine says, "I come to do Thy will, O God." He taketh away the first, that He may establish the second. So the second was established by Jesus. That covenant is the one that's described in the New Testament, not in some other testament. And notice, it's in Hebrews chapter nine, verse. 15 beginning, for this cause he's the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of uh, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise of no strength at all while the testator leave. Jesus, the, the, the New Testament Jesus Christ went into effect at the time of his death, and therefore there is no other. He'd have to die again to establish another testament. You couldn't establish another one after you're dead because it says there that it requires the death of the testator. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or added there, addeth thereto. So basically what uh, the Galatian writer there, what Paul's saying is that uh, once you're dead, it's locked in stone, if you will. Well, that's right. So basically putting all those passages together, it talks about a first covenant and a second. Jesus established the second covenant. He took away the first and established the second, and it went into force. His testament went into force at his death. And once the testament is in force, you can't add to it, Galatians 3.15 says. And so there couldn't be another testament of Jesus Christ because that testament of Jesus Christ was, was the one that was enforced by the New Testament that we have. And and consummated at the death of Jesus when he shed his blood. And Galatians 3.15 says nobody can add to that covenant. And so there's only one. There, right. is not, there are not two, as the uh, Book of Mormon would like to believe. The, uh, you know, actually, Jacob, the New Testament tells us that it is the complete and final revelation of God. And we need to know that that's for sure. In John 16, verse 12, beginning, Jesus said, I have many things to say. He was talking to his apostles. Now, get this. Jesus talking to his apostles. John 6, verse 12. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Emphasis there on the fact that the apostles in their lifetime were to be guided into all truth, not some truth, but all truth. Second uh, Peter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Jude 3 speaks of the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And so the New Testament claims to be God's complete and final revelation. Uh, the Book of Mormon claims to be something more than that. How can it be more? If... if if the New Testament is God's complete and final revelation, how can there be something more? I've got to read this to you, Jacob. I found this recently. He says, uh, a guy wrote a brief little article. He said, the last time some Mormons came to my house, I asked them if God kept his promise to the apostles in John 16 to guide the apostles into all truth. 
they affirmed several times that Jesus kept his promise, that the apostles received all the truth, that Peter spoke truly in 2 Peter 1.3, that God had revealed all things that pertain to life and godliness, and that Joseph Smith simply restored the truth as the apostles originally received it. But they seemed surprised when I read to them from Doctrines and Covenants. That's one of their, that's one of their books, another book that Joseph Smith wrote, Doctrines and Covenants. I have the reference here, 121.26. And it says, quote, God shall give unto you knowledge by his Holy Spirit that has not been revealed since the world was until now. Then in Doctrines and Covenants 124.41, where God supposedly said that they would build a temple so that he could reveal things, quote, reveal things which have been kept hid from the foundation of the world, things that pertain to the dispensation of the fullness of times. And so the, the writings of Joseph Smith claim to reveal additional truths. He says, when I made that point to the Mormons, they said, well, I learned something new every day, and they refused after that to discuss the question of whether John 16, 13, and 2 Peter 1, 3 spoke the truth. So we didn't have much more to say because they knew right away that these statements were inconsistent with Jesus' promises. The book, the book of Mormon and their additional book, Doctrines and Covenants, there's another called The Pearl of Great Price, these profess to reveal new or additional truth. Jesus said that his apostles would be guided into all truth. And so that's that contradiction with the Scripture. Appreciate that comment, Aaron. Excellent uh, approach there and an excellent uh, observation. When the Book of Mormon claims to have new revelation, yet the Bible says that we've got all that we need and so there is a contradiction. The two are not compatible. Let us know your thoughts at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. What about the book, though, if it is from God and if it is a revelation of God, wouldn't that book have to have the same characteristics that the Bible has, i.e., wouldn't it have to have accuracy throughout its pages, no contradictions like the Bible? If it's from God, certainly God wouldn't give a revelation that had error in it. Exactly right. And you know, this is something interesting. The Book of Revelation, uh, the Book of Mormon, rather, the Book of Mormon doesn't even claim to be infallible. In First uh, Nephi 19:6, it says, "Quote: Nevertheless, I do not write anything upon plates, save it be that I think it be sacred. And now, if I do error, even did they err of old." Not that I would excuse myself because of other men, but because of the weakness which is in me, according to the flesh, I would excuse myself. You know, now that doesn't sound biblical at all. Of course, it's not from the Bible. It's from the Book of Mormon. But it says, you know, if I do it, Eric, it, please excuse me. I'm just a man. You know, the new, there you go. Well, the, the, the inspired writers of the Bible never wrote in that fashion. They never said, excuse me if I made a mistake here. That's just that, that kind of terminology is not in the Bible. And so what we're saying, the Book of Mormon... And the writings of Joseph Smith do not even claim infallibility as the Bible does. And that's a quote from the Book of Mormon, First Nephi 19, verse 6. says that there could be errors in the Book of Mormon. Well, are there errors in the Book of Mormon? Yeah, there are contradictions. There are many contradictions. For instance, in Mosiah 18, verse 17, it says they were called the Church of God or the Church of Christ from that time forward. Here's the problem, though. Mosiah 18 was written supposedly written in 147 B.C., 150 years before Jesus was born. And it says they were calling themselves the Church of Christ before Christ was even born. Uh, a, a similar quote, Second Nephi 31, 21. Now behold, my beloved brethren, this is the way, and there is none other way, nor name given under heaven, whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. That almost sounds like Acts 4, 12, doesn't it? A lot of the Book of Mormon is exactly. almost a paraphrase of the Bible. It says, And now, behold, this is the doctrine of Christ and the only true doctrine of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, which is one God without end. Amen. It speaks of the doctrine of Christ, but Second Nephi was supposedly written 500 B.C., over 500 years before Jesus came to earth. It talks about the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ wasn't revealed until the first century A.D. I like this one in uh, Alma chapter 7, verse 10, very historical accuracy here, uh, very accurate. And behold, he shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem, which is the land of our forefathers, she being a virgin, a precious and chosen vessel, who shall be overshadowed and conceived by, uh, conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, and shall bring forth a son, yea, even the Son of God. Alma chapter 7, verse 10 says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. 
That's well, an interesting revelation. Since the Bible says he was born in Bethlehem. Well, the, the Book of Mormon is true. You learn something new every day. They're revealing new truth there. Jesus yeah. was born in Jerusalem. Well, it's not truth. And now it's not new truth. It can't be true because it contradicts established truth. All right, so there's a contradiction. Exactly right. And then here's another from Helaman 14, verses 20 and 27. In the day that he shall suffer death, talking about the death of Jesus, in the day he shall suffer death, the sun shall be darkened and refuse to give his light unto you, and also the moon and the stars, and there shall be no light upon the face of the of this land, even from the time that he shall suffer death, for the space of three days to the time that he shall rise again from the dead. Darkness shall cover the face of the whole earth for the space of three days. The scripture says there was darkness on the face of the earth for three hours. And and so here's a direct contradiction between the writings of Joseph Smith and what's written in the Bible. And so it can't be. The, the, of course, the Bible denies the, the possibility of another testament of Jesus Christ. It tells us that the New Testament is God's complete and final revelation. And the Book of Mormon, the writings of Joseph Smith, could not be from God because they contradict what we know is from God. And so we would just have to conclude that what the Mormons are saying is not true the book of mormon is not another testament of jesus all right we've got more information along those lines on the other side of this break and we'll look forward to hearing from you during the break use the time to compose your email or let your fingers do the walking send us uh, or give us a call at 877-381-4567 one more break to go we'll take it to the top of the hour after this stay tuned the virtual bible study will continue right after this Did you hear what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement. Do you remember when the emphasis of the work of the church was on teaching the gospel, converting the lost, and strengthening the saints? Can you recall good old-fashioned gospel preaching that appealed to the Bible as the sole and final authority in all religious matters? Are you tired of seeing churches that seem much more interested in social events and entertainment than in simply following the New Testament pattern? Would you love to hear lessons from the pulpit like you used to hear? Do you want to find a church that is still doing things the way you remember from years ago? If these things describe the way you are feeling, please visit the College View Church of Christ. My name is Roger Toombs, and me and my wife love to listen to the virtual Bible study on Thursday nights. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over, and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. And welcome back. Thank you again for being a part of the virtual Bible study tonight and this important discussion of Mormonism on the virtual Bible study. Let us know your thoughts. There's plenty of time to take your comments over the phone or over email tonight. Jacob, we ask a second question, and I want to get to that. How do you how do you address or answer, how do you deal with the Mormons who come knocking at your door? As we said earlier, they're very active to do that, and, and, and that is not something to be made light of. I actually commend them for their work and uh, disagree with them, but I commend them for their zeal, at least, in promoting what they believe to be true. Uh, Keith and Lynchburg says, I am polite to them, but I point out there is teaching that, that their teaching is in error. I do not invite them in because the Bible tells me not to. I've even worked with one, and we talked about the things the Mormon church teaches. We discussed Revelation 22, 18 and 19 in depth, but it changed nothing with this fellow. Of course, Revelation 22, 18 19 talks about adding to the Word of God, and that's the reference that Keith makes there. So he says, I'm polite to them. Uh, even try to talk with him. Now, Keith says he would not invite them into his house, and I know that that comes from Second uh, John, uh, verses 9 through 11, and uh, I, I might just comment about that. I, I don't think we're doing wrong to have someone actually come within the four walls of our house or under the roof of our house. In Second John 9, he says, "...whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God." He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. I understand that this, John was saying when he says, receive him not into your house or bid him Godspeed. That was the idea of, of accepting him, giving, giving him quarters, uh, you know, making provision for him to have a place to stay, food to eat, uh, giving him actually uh, uh, the things that he needs so that he can continue to teach his false doctrine. I I understand that's to be what John is saying. It's not the idea, don't let them within the confines of your four walls of your house. Rather, he's saying, don't invite them in and support them so that they can continue this false teaching. If you give them this, if you bid them Godspeed, you're actually partaking in their evil deeds. In other words, if I 
I said, well, I don't agree with what you teach, but you're welcome to stay at my house and, and I'll feed you and you can come and go at, at your will and you can go around in this community and spread your false doctrine. That's what John was saying, don't do. All right. Thank you for those uh, comments tonight, Keith, and for listening again to the virtual Bible study. Well, what about this? How do we, uh, we asked the question, how do we approach the, the Mormon? How can we discuss our differences with them? We've got some interesting comments along those lines on our email. Um, got one from uh, Mark in Cookville, Tennessee. He says, it depends, but I usually try to study with them. We've had some visit us at each place we've lived, and usually the studies last from one to three sessions. But my experience so far is that they don't really seem to be open-minded. Jim in Mount Pleasant says he uh, often thanks them for coming by and thinking about him, and he asks them if he can study with them. So appreciate Jim for commenting tonight. Anthony in Columbia, Tennessee says, I've actually never had a Mormon come to my door, but I think Christians should study the Bible with anyone willing to listen. I would agree with Anthony. I think that's right. In other words, if they're willing, then by all means, study with them. Uh, that That's the point. Um, I might I might describe what my approach has been here. Usually when they come, I'm, I'm anxious to talk with them and try to express that. I'm glad you're here, and I, I love to talk about the things of God. What I need you to do, here's, here's my challenge to them. I said, what I need you to do is to prove to me that the writings of Joseph Smith are, the, are inspired of God. Because really, that's, that's the basis of our difference. You, I believe the Bible. You believe the Bible and this Book of Mormon. Now, so what I need for you to do is convince me, give me the evidence that Joseph Smith was an inspired writer, that these are inspired writings of God, because that's what I don't believe right now. And I said, I need you to pre present the evidence to me. And that's what I want to study with you. I will study with you, and I'll study with you in depth, but this is what we need to study about. My response has always been, I've never had a single one of the Mormons take me up on that challenge. The response has always been, pray to God. If you'll pray to God, God will give you an answer. And to which I say, no, that's not the right answer. When I'm talking to an atheist, I don't. he doesn't believe in God or the Bible. I don't ask him to pray. I don't ask him to pray and get an answer from God. I give him the evidence. I give him the evidence of the existence of God. I give him the evidence of the inspiration of the Bible. And I think based upon the evidence, a logical conclusion can be reached. And that's what I challenge the Mormons to do about their books. But I've never had a single one take me up on that. All right. Uh, Brian in Plainfield, Indiana says, I have invited them inside my home in the past and tried to steer the conversation away from their rehearsed presentation to some pointed question about their views on Scripture and the Book of Mormon. Generally, they promise to come back but never do. The main goal is to gently but firmly steer the conversation slash study towards the, the true biblical teaching. The elders will want to control the conversation and keep it focused on the Book of Mormon, but you have to be firm in keeping the conversation focused about the Book of God. Okay. Uh, thank you, Brian, for your email. Uh, Steve writes, if I have time, I invite them in, hear whatever they have to say, and respond to it, comparing it with the Bible. If I don't have time, I kindly tell them that what I think of their religion in an effort to help them. That's from Steve. Randy in Jackson, Missouri says, it seems to be very difficult to reason with a Mormon on faith issues, those things that we believe by faith. They are very skilled in their theology. It is easier to use factual data. For example, archaeological data from the Middle East that supports the Bible is huge. North American archaeological data to support the Mormon books is non-existent. So Randy's basically saying what I was saying earlier. They don't have any evidence. The reason they won't take up that challenge to present their evidence is because they don't have it. Wade writes, I would invite any person in my home for a Bible study. I would probably start out with proving the Bible to be the inspired Word of God, we would have to have the, that mutual understanding first or we really couldn't continue. And that's the truth. In other words, if we're going to take the Bible, but they're going to take something more than the Bible, we don't have a common playing ground, a playing field. We've got to come, we gotta come to, to terms about what is going to be the basis of our, of our decision-making religiously. And uh, Jason, uh, is Jason in Pennsylvania? Yes. Jason's in Pennsylvania. He uses uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. We commented on that. If an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed. And uh, uh, that uh, is uh, the fact that they say Joseph Smith had an angel come to him and give him some kind of revelation does not make it true. Galatians 1, 8 and 9 tells us that if it is different from what we've already received, that we should not accept it. He says, another point I would make is the way that they say proves the Book of Mormon is inspired, the inspired Word of God. They say 
that if you just read it, the Holy Spirit will reveal to you that it is indeed the Word of God. The Holy Spirit does not work this way as revealed in our scriptures. The reason why I believe that the New Testament is inspired of God is because Jesus said that the men that wrote it would be his inspired spokesmen to the world and that their words are what his people would be united in, John 17. The Holy Spirit doesn't lead us the way the Mormon church would teach. John 17, verse 8, For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. John 17, verses 20 and 21, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be at one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And then he also mentions contradictions and mentions a couple of them that we already did. The Book of Mormon says Jesus was born at Jerusalem instead of Bethlehem and says that there was darkness for three days at his death rather than three hours. And so those are the kind of things that he uses to approach the uh, the Mormons when they come to his door. I've got a follow-up email from Jason. He says it's interesting that one-eighteenth of the Book of Mormon is actually identical word-for-word word from the King James Bible of 1611. This is interesting. I've read this before, too. Something on the order of 8% of the Book of Mormon is an actual word-for-word conveyance of not of the original New Testament, but of the King James Version uh, that was, wasn't was even written in, or wasn't even translated until 1611. And the funny thing is that they even quote the italicized words included by the translators. In other words, Joseph Smith was just just a sort of, uh, uh, what would you call it? Uh, Looking for something to put in his book? Well, he, he had read the Bible, and, and so he was just sort of carrying over from what he had read and putting it in his book. He says, nearly 4,000 changes have been made in the Book of Mormon since its writing, fixing errors in grammar and even some contradictions. Will the Mormons actually say that Joseph Smith made that many mistakes translating the book with the help of God? Interesting points there. And that's some of how uh, Jason goes about answering the Mormons when they come to his door. Aaron in Texas says, I've had several approach. I've tried several approaches. None of them has succeeded in bringing a Mormon out of Mormonism. But at least I think I figured out how to get them to a clear decision point in the first visit. The last time some Mormons came to my house, I asked them if God kept his promise to the apostles, John 16, 13, to guide the apostles into all truth. Um, and and then he says they affirmed several times Jesus kept his promise. In fact, actually, this is where I got this statement that I read to you. Aaron's the one who wrote this. Uh, when he showed them that Jesus promised to send his, his uh, apostles all truth, and yet the, the writings of Joseph Smith claimed to reveal new truth, and they couldn't answer it. So I think that that, uh, that really does work well. And, and so next time you talk to the Mormons, maybe use Aaron's approach here that we read earlier. Ask them if the apostles got all the truth in their lifetime. They'll say yes. Then quote from them. And the quotes are from Doctrine and Covenants 121.26 and 27 and 124.41. Both of those are instances where in the writings of Joseph Smith, it is claimed that they would be led to some new truth. And so th- those are good quotes to have on hand. Thank you, Aaron, for those good comments and uh, excellent uh, material there to use when studying with the Mormons. And finally, Don in Nashville has uh, somewhat of a tongue-in-cheek response to your question there, Dad. So I would tell them that when I toured their new temple in Franklin a few years ago, I conducted myself courteously and complied with their rules while in their facilities. So if they would let me put a cover over their shoes and them agree to be quiet, then they could come in on in into my house and watch one of my favorite two-hour sermons. <laughs> so there you go. That's Don's approach. Thank you, Don. I got one more clarification from Keith. We read his email earlier. He said, I want to clarify what I was talking about when I say not to invite them into my house. I'm all for studying with them, but if I invite them into my house where my children are present, my children may lend their ears to this strange teaching. I can't allow this teaching around young ears for this reason. I would gladly invite them in for a Bible study in different conditions. And so Keith clarifying, I think he agrees with what we were saying earlier. Thank you, Keith, for that clarification. Well, we're out of time. Have we got everything covered that we need to cover? Well, I think it's been kind of hurried here to last, but uh, this is an interesting topic. It's a current events kind of a topic, but it's also an ancient topic. The Mormons have been around for many years, and we've all, many of us, most all of us, have been approached at some time or another by the Mormons at our door. We need to know how to respond to them. They have a false religion. It's clearly contradictory to the New Testament of Jesus Christ, and we need to be prepared to show them that. 
Now, as to whether or not that would affect our decision to vote for such a person, obviously we had people on both sides of that question. I've got to tell you, honestly, I'm not sure where, where I stand on that question just yet. Um uh, uh, but it's something to give consideration to. You said that the Mormons have been around for a while. They have been around for a while, but not long enough. Exactly right. We need to go back to what the Bible says, and we need to go back and follow the religion that was established when Christ died on the cross and that covenant that went into effect because of Christ's death. And we look forward to you joining with us next week as we study more about uh, that religion that was established then. Beth, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. Enjoyed the study tonight. And you do make plans to be back here next week. Jared, thank you. Before we end, thank you for being here. Thanks for letting me stay here. All right. And uh, we look forward to you being a part of the program next week. So make plans to join us. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study his inspired word in the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.